brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is episode 120 of Alohomora for January 17, 2015. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Alohomora. I am Eric Skull. I'm Kristen Keys. And I'm Kat Miller. And our special fan guest today is Courtney Pickett. Hello, Courtney. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, your house and all that jazzy jazz. Well, I am a Gryffindor. And there is not much to say about that, except I like being a Gryffindor. <laughs> I thought I was going to be a Hufflepuff. Gryffindor. Okay. <laughs> um, and I live in Orlando, so I do get to go visit the Wizarding World a couple of times a year, which I love. That's exciting. We're nice. The three of us, oddly enough, are going to be there <laughs> in two weeks. We're very excited. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. the Harry Potter event? Yep. Yep. I've not made it to one of those yet. Oh, it's good fun. Well, thank you again uh, for joining us, and we want to remind our listeners that this week we are going to be discussing Half-Blood Prince Chapter 2, entitled Spinner's End. Ooh. Mm, that's right. Last week... On last week's episode, we began Half-Blood Prince with Chapter 1, The Other Minister, and now we have some of those comments from that discussion, uh, which we're going to bring up. Now, I have to say there was a wonderful turnout. As always, the listeners do not disappoint. We had over 100 comments Damn. on the main site, all provoking discussion. Awesome. I know. It, I know. You know, it's funny because I love it when we have that many comments, but it also is so hard when you are the person who's doing recap because <laughs> you have to read every single one. Not complaining because they're yep. always amazing, but it's a lot to take in, especially because the theories are all really amazing and all the comments are thought-provoking and good. It's difficult completely agree so this time uh in gathering the comments for this episode i focused on um honestly some things that we either overlooked or didn't spend too much time on so uh very in this is going to be a big uh info catch-up here due to our dutiful listeners so first comment comes from snatch the snitch who says about the world war thing last week we questioned (laughs) if voldemort wanted Mm -hmm. to take over the world 
Snatch the Snitch says, I always viewed the war at this point as an internal conflict of the UK, sort of like a civil war. I'm not sure other wizarding countries would get involved until Voldemort poses a direct threat to them. The counter-argument is that it's obvious he poses a threat to the world, but we've seen similar situations throughout human history where countries don't intervene at convenient times. Also, Voldemort has been seen by the ministry at the ministry, but he's still working largely in deception. People in the UK know he's back, but has he open declared uh, has he openly declared war on the world at large? Voldemort still works behind the scenes while infiltrating the ministry, and when he does take over, how many people really know? It's possible he or Thickness had other countries convinced things were still okay at that point. So that is a nice comment. Thank you, Snatch the Snitch, for bringing that up. So last week, um, we questioned, uh, I think it's Fudge, that says to the Muggle Prime Minister that they right. are at war. Um, and because that that aspect of it, the, the war scene from the government side is not particularly focused on in these books, the question is, you know, how big does this war get and how does it escalate? Because even in book seven, when it's, you know, full out war mode for Harry and, and everybody else, the question is, does the war become worldwide or is this it just It seems super thing? centralized to like northern Scotland, <laughs> like right in that 100, like, miles or whatever where Hogwarts is. Like, it's a nice round circle <laughs> around Hogwarts. Well, and, 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 and London, though, to be fair, where well, the I Ministry suppose, of Magic yeah. is. But not a yeah. whole lot, mm-hmm. really. I mean, I mean, no, I guess that's true. I guess there's stuff happening in London, but... Yeah, you definitely don't hear them about, you know, attacking anywhere in, you know, Wales or France or anything like that, so... Maybe he mm-hmm. just has his, his sights set really, really small, just on the UK. <laughs> I think what we had said last week, too, was that it's probably he's, you know, he wants to get rid of his nemesis first. Ah, um, uh, yes, Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter. So that's a possibility. Anyway, the next comment comes from Enough Effing Owls, <laughs> <laughs> who says, I wanted to bring up something I think you guys glossed over a little bit in the chapter discussion. When... Fudge is waiting for Scrimgeour to arrive. The portrait tells him that Scrimgeour is just finishing up a letter to Dumbledore. There's a quote. I wish him luck, said Fudge, sounding bitter for the first time. I've been writing to Dumbledore twice a day for the past fortnight, but he won't budge. If he had just been prepared to persuade the boy, uh, I might still be, well, maybe Scrimgeour will have more success. Knowing what comes later in the books, we can assume that this is a reference to the Ministry's attempt to get Harry's uh, outspoken support. With Harry on their side as a mascot, as Harry later quips, they would have much easier time regarding the trust of the public. From this line, we know that this attempt has been going on long before Scrimgeour's oh-so-awkward arrival at the Burrow. On first read-through, however, this line is much more vague and mysterious and goes mostly unnoticed. Yeah, it's weird that um, I guess I n- never really thought of Fudge as the type who would have come up with this plan. I always thought that it was kind of like, you know, um, a Rufus thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the plan is in action, whether it was his idea or not. But if he's been writing to Dumbledore for weeks, that certainly outdates or like it precedes his uh, departure as right. Minister for Magic. That's true. So it seems like the ministry is trying to recruit Harry way way early because doesn't i mean the whole mascot thing doesn't even happen in this book right it's the next book at the burrow 
when Scrimgeour arrives that he tries to persuade Harry. Am I wrong? No, uh, you're right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Okay. So the plan, I mean, it's it kind of raised the question for me, um, this comment and the fact that this happened at this early stage in the books, that Dumbledore is really there acting as a, uh, not even a buffer, a wall between the Ministry and Harry. Um, Dumbledore, it's, it's somehow it's Dumbledore's issue that the Ministry wants, that the Minister for Magic wants Harry on their side. And that's why all of a sudden it happens kind of almost right after Dumbledore is dead. Right. Spoiler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so like Dumbledore, clearly Dumbledore through words or actions is preventing this sort of conversation from ever taking place with Harry. Right. It's interesting that it's going on a year before we hear about it, even though we hear about it at the beginning of the sixth book. And that Fudge is the one that came up with it because I find that hard to believe. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's debatable. I still think it's probably somebody else in his office. But yeah. Oh, right. That's true. That makes more yeah. sense. I mean, somebody was just like, you you need this boy. Oh. And he's like, oh, he doesn't really like me. It's, <laughs> it's, well, you, you you need him, sir. Go Go ask. And so he does. But, uh, okay, next comment comes from Slytherin Knight. Another wonderful username from our wonderful listeners. I was wondering what everyone thought about how Fudge, who most people regard as a coward, would use the term war when describing the return of Voldemort. It was another war one. While I consider it a civil war of sorts, and I think most readers do as well, you could also call it an insurgency or a terrorist action. I mean, that's what the Death Eaters are for the most part, a group of terrorists, right? And since this is the second time the Wizarding World has faced this threat, one would think that the Ministry of Magic slash Dumbledore would allow its defenders, i.e. ours, Order, Dumbledore's Army, to fight back using all means at their disposal, much like Crouch Sr. did during the first blood war, taking the restrictions off the Ministry's ours. We see the light, good guys, Harry and friends, etc., use mainly only non-lethal spells when fighting for their lives. I know it's still a book away, but I think the scene in which Lupin confronts Harry about using the disarming charm in the flight from Privet Drive, Harry seems to equate using lethal spells as being like murder itself. What about Bombarda, Reducto, Defindo? Those spells, while not instantly lethal, at least would injure or maim those they hit, and they would even the playing field slightly against the Death Eaters. I mean, for the most part, the main combatants on the light side are teenagers, not adults, fully qualified witches or wizards. So, uh, further, 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 same comment, same person. This book and Order of the Phoenix are supposed to be the turning point in the series when we see the books get darker and more serious, and yet we don't really see the light side really taking the fight to the Death Eaters, at least until the Battle of Hogwarts, the Hogwarts Resistance, and Deathly Hallows. So I really like this comment because going into book six, I mean, you have the introduction in chapter one where Fudge says they're at war. And this question or this comment brings up this this notion that the light side is is not playing rough enough. And it's something that I think I want to keep in mind as I'm I'm reading about, you know, war events in this book and the next. I think, too, that it, part of it is is strategy. I mean, why bring the war and bring a battle on before you have to? I mean, it says here that um, I got to find it. Um, hmm. Oh, it says, and yet we don't really see the light side really take the fight to the Death Eaters. Right, because they have other things to do. You know, why why put the emphasis on fighting when you can be smarter and, you know, more covert 
even. Yeah, there's no point in speeding yeah. up the fight if you don't have to. Like, if you can get stuff done in the background yeah. before taking it to them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Get more supporters, which I think both sides are doing, to be fair. Yeah, but. And, and I think, too, that Dumbledore probably has a, a – I feel like he's kind of the um, – <clears throat> What's the word for the leader of a of an army? Like a commander or commander, yeah, like the captain. Like the Napoleon or whatever. He he's the one mm. saying don't do anything, don't attack. Don't. General. The general. <laughs> maybe that's the one. You know, he's saying don't attack, don't don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Because he knows in his mind that there's no point in having this fight because there's still horcruxes in the world. You know what? That is a mm-hmm. good point because this book is all about Dumbledore's kind of gradual realization although he passes it off as being speculation to harry about the fact that he's discovering why and how voldemort is still alive yeah um and that is essential before the actual fight breaks out to Mm. reduce voldemort to mortality yeah Mm -hmm. so it's like there's still a few errands that need to be run before the war can happen and that's this book right yeah pretty much dumbledore's gonna stall as long as possible (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah interesting Okay, and final comment uh, of the recap comes from the band that needs no introduction. Nice. (laughs) They say, by the way, according to Pottermore, the portrait in the Muggle Prime Minister's Office, which is uh, the title of last week's episode, The Coffin Canvas, the portrait is of Ulick Gamp, the first ever minister for magic. Actually, I I wanted to thank uh, the band that needs no introduction. I actually went on Pottermore and looked this up. And there's a wonderful list. It's actually in the moment in book five when you go into the Ministry of Magic. It's uh, book five, chapter seven, moment one. You're in the atrium. And that is where you get this writing from J.K. Rowling of all of the prime ministers that have ever been. It's And there's a whole... It's a huge yeah, list. It's crazy. Crazy, huge list. There's fascinating information like their term of office is usually a maximum of seven years and they're encouraged to, you know, seek re-election or, you know, election of somebody else. But um, what I wanted to bring up here is that uh, Pottermore does confirm it is a portrait of Ulick Gamp that that hangs in the Muggle Prime Minister's study in number 10 Downing Street. So that's the location of last week's chapter. And there's an additional uh, bit of info here from Pottermore. No Muggle Prime Minister has ever set foot in the Ministry of Magic for reasons most succinctly summed up by ex-minister Dugald McFall, uh, who served from 1858 to 1865. Dugald had this to say uh, as to why Muggles could never see, or the Muggle Prime Ministers had never been there. Quote, their pure wee brains couldn't I cope with. <laughs> <laughs> nice so that was uh that was a blast looking that up (laughs) but uh so we actually know who that uh portrait is of and where specifically the minister was last week that's pretty awesome yeah i never knew that Mm. now we're gonna go into the podcast question of the week responses and let me give you a quick reminder of what the question was for last week As we discussed in this chapter with Fudge's visit to the Muggle Prime Minister, there seems to be an established relationship between the Muggle and Wizarding governments. But what is their relationship? How and when did it begin? Are the Wizards always more in control than the Muggles know? Or is this a special circumstance because of the emerging war with Baltimore? Another comment from Slytherin Knight from the main site says, I honestly think that 
J.K. Rowling did a disservice to the outside world in the Harry Potter series. To me, she made it seem like the Muggle government were completely unaware of a vast majority of the events in the Wizarding World, even though both societies occupy the same world. To me, Fudge comes off as condescending to the Prime Minister, treating him like a schoolchild when explaining that the mag magical world exists. Also, Fudge really confirms himself a coward in the fact that he isn't even able to save Voldemort when informing the Prime Minister that Voldemort had returned. You would think that this would send alarm bells ringing through the Prime Minister's head if the leader or former leader of the magical world can't even say a terrorist name. I seem to remember a line that Fudge says telling the Prime Minister that the Minister of Magic reveals themselves to the Prime Minister of the day, which leads credence that the ministry has had some sort of relationship with the Prime Minister since its founding. I don't know that it's a disservice to the magical where I kind of take offense at this comment actually. <laughs> yeah, I disagree with it quite a bit actually too. Yeah. So. No, I agree. <laughs> um we did discuss last week uh about Fudge and how he's a coward and how he gets what he deserves or doesn't, but you know in that he's been removed from office and I don't disagree that it's kind of cowardly not to be able to say a terrorist name, but I don't see how this is like JK Rowling's fault. Um that I mean, it's it's we're supposed to believe it's a suspension of disbelief that the Wizarding World is good enough that the Muggles have never seen giants roaming. Right, mm -hmm. and 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 obviously Fudge does come off as condescending to the Prime Minister, treating him like a schoolchild because, well, I mean, he has absolutely no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Fudge <laughs> you know? does know things that the Muggle Prime Minister knows nothing about. Right, I don't think it's condescension. I think it's knowledge <laughs> like he he's like i know more yeah, right he legitimately about. knows more about what he's talking about yeah about what's going on in the world yeah, exactly mm -hmm. um yeah and personally i'm okay with the muggle government being completely unaware of the mass the the events happening in the wizarding world like not me personally because i'd like to be a wizard <laughs> but in general i think it's probably okay that we don't know about what's going on yeah yeah i agree yeah. it's probably okay <laughs> and oh and that's part of the the key i think in in any uh reader you know to believe that these events could really be happening that this world could exist alongside our own and we just don't know about it yeah it's a joke it's it's supposed to be it's fun it's fantasy yeah. it's like Oh, yeah, they clearly are just memory charming the people <laughs> who, by happenstance, are actually seeing these giants. Right. But giants are totally a thing, and unicorns really exist. And all sorts yeah, of every things. single time that it's foggy outside, I'm like, oh, breeding season. <laughs> Dementors must be <laughs> That's breeding. That's what I was thinking today. Wow, yep. chicka, wow, wow. Oh, was it foggy where you are today? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh, Dementors were but getting busy. Misty? <laughs> just had to eat some chocolate, you know. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, the Dementors must be around me a lot then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next, we're going to read a comment from the band that needs no introduction. They say, We know from Pottermore that in 1782, Porteus Natchbull was called in by the Muggle Prime Minister, Prime Minister Lord North to help with King George III's mental instability. Other ministries of, ministers of magic after this had positive or negative interactions with Muggle leadership including Evangeline Orpington, who was a personal friend of Queen Victoria. It seems that prior to the International Statue of Secrecy, there was broad interaction between Wizarding Society and Muggle Society. 
Once the statute was in place, it restricted interaction to the heads of government only. The purpose was for wizards and muggles to live in parallel societies without interference. Wizards have more power at their disposal, but only use it on muggles when necessary to keep their magical society a secret. The emerging war with Voldemort brings more interaction because of the spillover into muggle affairs. In times of peace, the muggle prime minister may only need that initial visit from the Minister of Magic on his first day in office. This is a very um, wonderful mm-hmm. answer to the question. I think it hit on all of the topics. I agree. And did so with mm-hmm. info directly from Pottermore. Yeah, so. this person yeah. is clearly a dictionary or someone who is very good at, <laughs> at, at Wikipedia and yeah. looking Pardon things me, up. Yeah. Are you a dictionary? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's this really kind of cool information. And oh, just, this is clearly oh, Hermione. <laughs> there you go. That's that's a nice, much more polite yeah. way of saying what you just <laughs> yes, said. Yes, it is. It's true. Um, I, ne- I meant I no offense. Say, I want to say that the uh, previous, you know, back in history when the lines were more blurred mm-hmm. um, kind of speaks towards when people adopted, like, superstitions as reality. You know, like uh, the curing of, you know, with, by leeches and witchcraft and all mm. sorts of things that people really openly believed in. Um, that have not that have been eclipsed uh, from you know by modern technology and the industrial revolution and things. So like since all of that stuff happens, we don't really believe in sorcery or witchcraft. But back then, conveniently before the statute of secrecy, mm-hmm. everybody like all of it was kind of out in the open. It was perfectly normal for you to you know see somebody brewing a potion. Well, and that was the late 17th century too. So. Mm-hmm. The world was very different. Very different. Yeah. I really need so. to get on that Pottermore more. <laughs> Me too. It, it seems really interesting yeah. with these excerpts. It's just like, oh my gosh, I was oh so gosh, fascinated so by this comment. I was like, this is really cool. I didn't yeah, know all that, this. <laughs> the Half-Blood Prince information, while still very minimal, is super interesting stuff. It's really... I've always been an advocate of Pottermore. I love it. I always have, you know... Um, and I'm looking forward to the, you know, more stuff that they're going to add. Because mm-hmm. there's only like 10 lo- moments in Half-Blood Prince total right, right. now. Oh, yeah. okay. When I was looking up the um, minister list, they made me unlock it. I had the link, but even the direct link said, this is locked. So you have to go to the moment. Mm-hmm. So I went to the moment and I'm in the atrium and I'm clicking on like, there's something above the fireplace. What's that? Oh, it's just flu powder. <laughs> oh, there's something on the ground. What's that? Oh, it's galleons. <laughs> oh, wait, what's this sign? Oh, yes. Thankfully, I've unlocked the minister. <laughs> it was funny. Because there's a lot of collectibles now that you can add to your trunk, which aren't what you're looking for. Well, that's how you, but, like, buy stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, make potions wait, and all that. Can you read the books that you buy? Um, Yet? No. I know, don't think so. I wanted them to do that because that would be awesome. That would be, I mean, okay. that would be a lot of new content to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sidebar. Joe has a few other things going on, All right, and our last comment comes from Bent Winged Snidget from the main site. And they say, I know it makes sense for the governments to have been allied for a long time, but for some reason I think the establishments of the relationship was recent. What could have happened is that after World War II and Grindelwald, the magical government realized that muggles and wizards are actually a lot more intertwined than previously. And in order to keep all citizens safe, the muggle minister and government have to be aware of all of the magical risks happening. 
Therefore, I think that the Prime Minister being notified of Voldemort's return was a direct consequence of what had happened with the previous Dark Wizard. As for Muggles being more ignorant, I think that the Ministry of Magic does regard itself as higher and more influential than the Muggle Ministry. Though with a less biased and prejudiced government, maybe under Kingsley, I think a healthier relationship is possible. I really like this comment too. It's an interesting. It's interesting to think that um, the Wizarding World does see itself as higher because if you're thinking about it, the Muggle World has a greater population. Mm-hmm. So it's like the small guy, the little kid, is looking and viewing itself as, you know, the 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 taller kid on the playground. Mm-hmm. David and Goliath. Yeah. Yeah. But I also like the idea that they have come to this arrangement under, you know, a time of stress. Even though Pottermore disproves it and says that, you know, they've been friends since the 17th century mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, I like the idea that these more formal relations were established recently as a result of kind of the groups growing together, both in population, but being forced together during a mm-hmm. war when the, te- the territory is at stake you know, from external yeah. forces. Yeah, yeah, because that portrait um, obviously has not been hanging in that exact spot since whenever the first... Well, how old is uh, how old is 10 Downing Street? I want to know how long that has been the official government site. Oh, uh, yeah. For... Good idea. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's look. It's over mm-hmm. 300 years old, according to the wiki. Oh. Well, there you go. So... So JKR actually found a building where I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, it says construction started in 1682 and was completed in go. 1684. Oh wow! There you go. So that building that the prime minister still holds office oh, in cool. is that Man. old? Wow! So it legitimately that portrait legitimately could have been there <laughs> the entire time. Yeah, wow. crazy cool. I like the idea also that I know we answered this before, but because it's um, the first ever minister for magic, it's like he never left. Like he he held such an important position that he's m- memorialized or immortalized in being the spokesperson, always announcing mm-hmm. you know emergency visits <laughs> and everything. It's kind of cool. well, that's just kind of a great yeah. honor. That's just how kind of like George Washington is hung up all over the place. That's true. Yeah, same type mm-hmm. of deal. Yeah, or on our dollar bill. Right, yeah. he is on the dollar bill. <laughs> Thank you all for the great comments, and we look forward to hearing any more in our future podcast questions of the week. And with that, let's do this. It's the chapter time. Chapter two. Spinner's End. Okay, so here we are at chapter two. Two. One, two of Half-Blood Prince. I can count, guys. Ravenclaw. Um, Single digits are easier. (laughs) Yes, they are. So this is one of those chapters where, you know, kind of not a lot happens. We get a lot of information. Um, Evil and good in the forms of Bellatrix and Narcissa um, descend upon Severus Snape and discuss the plans that Lord Voldemort has for Draco Malfoy. Wait, which one's evil and which one's good? Well, it's pretty clear by the um, distinctions in here where it talks about mm. how light Narcissa is compared to her dark, heavy-lidded sister. Mm. Oh, okay. And I think, you know, we've talked about Narcissa a few times. She's not an awful woman. She's not a great woman, but she's not... Yeah. She does have redeeming qualities. Yeah, she loves her son. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, these two sisters are are very. It's fun to play them off each other to see them work in this, which you really only get to see in this chapter. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Ever yet another chapter that does not have Harry in it. Right. Yeah, there's oh, only true. a couple of those in the whole series. So yeah, but this is two mm-hmm. in a row. I know. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Um. So I just wanted to start um this very briefly with we're going to bring up Pottermore again. Um. We got a new bit of information about Cokeworth, which is the town that seemingly this chapter takes place in. Well, not seemingly. It it definitely takes place in because Joe said so. Um, There's not a whole lot of information on it, but I'm going to read it. It's kind of interesting and fun. It says, Cokeworth is a fictional town in the English Midlands where Harry spends a night at the Railview Hotel with his aunt, uncle, and cousin Dudley. Cokeworth's name is supposed to suggest an industrial town and to invoke associations of hard work and grime, which I guess is why Snape lives there. (laughs) Anyway, although it is never made explicit in the books, Cokeworth is the place where Petunia and Lily Evans and Severus Snape all grew up. When Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon are trying to evade the letters from Hogwarts, they travel to Cokeworth. Perhaps Uncle Vernon has a vague idea that Cokeworth is distinctly unmagical. The letters will not follow them there. He, he ought to have known better. After all, Petunia's sister, Lily, turned into a talent, talented witch in Cokesworth. It is therefore Cokeworth that Bellatrix and Narcissa visit at the start of Half-Blood Prince, where they visit Snape at his parents' old house. Cokeworth has a river running through it, evident of at least one large factory in the long chimney overlooking Snape's house, and many small streets full of workers' houses. So, not a lot of information, but it's kind of fun to know that um this actually really is where snape Mm -hmm. grew up although it's funny because i read this earlier and didn't catch it it's snape's parents old house but is it snape's current house you you don't think he just arrives to torture wormtail (laughs) i don't know i mean i always assumed that he lived at hogwarts well during the school year but i'm sure on his off time he just goes back there because it would remind him of lily maybe Mm -hmm. but i mean mcgonagall lives at hogwarts yeah Oh man, that would be bitter. That would be terrible. Yeah, it would be. Re- that's go, what I'm saying. Go home and you're reminded of Lily all the time yeah, because all by myself. You, you like pass the playground where you used to. Yeah, it would be terrible. But yeah, I mean, maybe it's just kind of been Wormtail's home for a while. Yeah, mm-hmm. we don't know what Wormtail's been doing. It was weird to see him in this mm-hmm. chapter because we don't know. He's been completely absent of the last book and like a yeah. half. But I, that's true. I guess during the summertime, maybe Snape's got to watch over him. Well, he can. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this seems like the perfect little town for him to be running around as a rat. Yeah. You know? Mm, yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Um, And I did, before we move on, want to take a very quick moment of silence for the fox that Bellatrix oh. so cruelly just murders. Bellatrix Lestrange is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> yeah, it's true. She's she's a she's a witch with a bee. Mm-hmm. In this chapter, so the two of them are talking, and we get this conversation between the two of them. Um, Bellatrix is trying to stop Narcissa from whatever she's doing. Obviously, we find out later that it's going to talk to Snape. However, mm-hmm. um, you know, Narcissa says, "But the Dark Lord trusts him," and Bella says, "Well, I think the Dark Lord is is mistaken." And um, she's a smart woman, first off, smarter than she looks. Um, but what do we think led her to not trust Snape? I mean, obviously, we learn some of the things later in the chapter. But what, what do you think started it for her? Do you really just think that it's just about 
the loyalty and all of that? Or is there something, like, is there an instinct there that she's picking up on? Because Snape is really good. Mm-hmm. I think it's obsession. She is obsessed with Voldemort. Mm-hmm. And mm. she is always at his beck and call. She's the, practically the first one to show up at meetings, I guess. And yeah. Snape shows up a little late. Over time, it uh, it bothers her. I agree. It's, it's his lateness. I think she definitely looks down upon anyone who is not as um, enthusiastic as she is. Ah. Yeah. And and she needs to be reminded time and time again that there are times when patience and carefully measured responses are more advantageous mm-hmm. to any side of a war versus her tendency to kind of shoot first, ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's a very impulsive woman. Mm-hmm. I agree. Very yeah. impulsive. And I think that her disarming in this chapter by Snape while masterful uh, really plays on um, her, you know, that tendency and Snape is able to, you know, reason with her by just saying, by just explaining, you know, Hey, it's here's, here's how we're better off because I took a little bit longer to show up. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because if you read through that and you really think about it, Snape is 1000% telling the truth the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah. He, he pretty much knew. He's he's in a very good position to be. Well, except for the part where he's playing Dumbledore for a fool. Well, right. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Isn't he kind of? I mean, probably at some point there was a part where before he switched over, there was some bit of him that was kind of playing Dumbledore a little bit. No? Well, um it's only described in the like in the in the pensive when we see like Snape and Lily or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that just how profound the impact was on Snape of Lily's death, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting that in this chapter we hear from Snape talking about when he first got involved at Hogwarts, and I'm not sure if the timeline you know stacks up or whatever, but he claims to have been a spy. For Voldemort, who got the appointment at Hogwarts, but in reality, Dumbledore, you know, caught Snape overhearing the prophecy and installed him at Hogwarts, mm-hmm. like as a countermeasure so that he could have him on his own side. So I think there's there's some questioning to be done, even way back when, mm-hmm. when Snape says he first went to Hogwarts under Voldemort's orders. It's a little unclear whose side he was really on even then. Yep. But I have a feeling that it was Dumbledore's the whole time. Yeah. yeah. There, I, I, I do feel like there could have been some overlap in there somewhere. Okay, so they finally reach Snape's house, this creepy little, like, dirty, dingy house. I actually think what they did in the movie for this is pretty seems pretty accurate to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly not the house of a prince. Yeah. <laughs> no. Or is it? <laughs> Um, and, and they sit down and uh, they bust out the elf made wine, which I found very <laughs> funny. Like, like, is it house elf made wine? That's because yeah. that's what they've assumed is that it's house elf made wine. OK, mm, that's interesting. I think it's a direct tie in for the second book since we like really meet Dobby in the second chapter that it's kind of like a little nod to that. Oh, circle theory. That's, that's really mm-hmm. cool. That's that's really cool. Also, I can imagine somebody like Winky really excelling at a vineyard. <laughs> no, she wouldn't. Smushing grapes. She'd be like, pass that on the floor all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
It's just funny because uh-huh. when I hear elf made wine, I instantly think of like Lothlorien or the woodland realm or, you know, whatever. So. Oh, me too. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely not. Definitely not house elf. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't drink, but I don't know if I would drink that wine. <laughs> it seems a little sketchy to me. <laughs> So we have this really awesome audio boo on this thing that I actually kind of never really picked up on before. So good point. Um, Let's give it a listen. Hi, everyone. This is Melissa from Ontario, Canada, calling with something I noticed in the chapter Spinner's End, page 34 of the Canadian UK hardcover edition. That was not my fault, said Bellatrix Flushing. The Dark Lord has, in the past, entrusted me with his most precious, if Lucius hadn't. Of course, on your first read, you think nothing of it. We think she's referring to a fumbled plot at the Ministry. But what we know is J.K.R.N.'s juicy sentences like this because they hide clues. In this case, Voldemort's most precious... What? My thought, she's referring to the cup. And this is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it clue to the location of one of the Horcrux. The line she ends up with, if Lucius hadn't, can also be double-read. At first read, I thought she was referring to the mess-up at the Ministry. But what if she was well aware that Voldemort entrusted two of his most precious items to the Malfoy family? Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If Malfoy hadn't thrown away the diary on a careless plot, would Bella be more trusted than she is in spite of what happened at the ministry? Or is the fact that Voldemort knows what Lucius did transferring distrust onto the second black family member he entrusted? Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, guys. Bye. I love this comment. It's good, huh? Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah. It's really good. You know, we're getting into this moment where during this whole discussion, it's super important to pay attention to every word, but don't for a minute think that these words only have have one possible meaning. And this is really brilliant because I, I never, I guess, I, I mean, I certainly didn't pick up on Mm-mm. this possibility that Bellatrix is hinting at the cup. I assume she, you could read it as, as being two ways. I mean, one, they're, they're just, yeah, they're talking about the incident at the ministry, whose fault it was, and Bella is just talking about how all of Voldemort's best missions are reserved for her or whatever, um, best tasks. Or she does know and is referencing the fact that something very special 
was handed to her. Yeah, and it, this is Joe here, so I think we're going to assume the latter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, I mean, you can you, it, for the innocent person and person who doesn't know uh, the events of book seven, you could just say, oh, yeah, Bella is tuning her own horn because she thinks she's the Dark Lord's favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why it works. I really like that. Do you think that do you think that Snape picked up on it at all? No, it, he, because, I mean, he knows about the Horcruxes. It, does it doesn't. I'm pretty sure he reaction, does. Though. I know, but mm-hmm. that I mean, that doesn't mean anything. No, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say no. Snape doesn't know about the Horcruxes because Dumbledore doesn't know about the Horcruxes. Dumbledore know knows about them because he's wearing he has a he is wearing a ring on his hand. He has a theory. No, uh-uh, and it's uh-uh. a, he destroyed the ring already. He knows about Horcruxes. He did destroy the ring, kind of. His refl- and Snape references it in this chapter, right? And so he knows about Horcruxes because mm-hmm. he destroyed the ring. And- but still, there's all that speculation in the pensive. No, the speculation that. is about how many there are, not that they <laughs> exist. Well, in the um, pensive scene, does he actually mention the Horcruxes at all, like in um, Deathly Hallows, or does it just does that come up later in their next conversation? Depends on which conversation you're referring to. Um, I don't have Deathly Hallows because there are many of them. Oh, I <laughs> yes, um, the one where he actually like tells Snape that about the horcruxes and Harry has to die. Isn't that after the whole ring incident? Um, mm. I don't know. That could be yeah, movie canon. Yeah, I'm not okay. sure. I'm, well, I'm trying to remember what order they played him in the book, but I don't have my seventh copy with me. I don't know. Yeah. I, f- I feel like a, a small part of me, I think obviously Snape reports back to Dumbledore on this conversation. Mm-hmm. And, oh, clear. Oh, oh cl- yeah. and and about the 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 unbreakable. Oh, absolutely. Vow. <laughs> but I, I mean, I feel like that bit of information. I mean, I mean, um, he could read Bellatrix's mind too. I mean, right. Which is a whole other, other discussion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Legitimacy. We'll get there. I don't know. I I just I think that he picked up on something. I, maybe he didn't know exactly what it was, but I think that. He he, I think that he thought that Bellatrix was hinting at something. I don't know. Snape is a complicated dude. Complicated dude. That he is. And speaking of complicated dudes, let's uh let's talk about Lucius for a minute, yeah. Mm. So um, Bellatrix tries to lay the blame on Lucius for what happened in the Ministry of Magic. Man, right in front of Narcissus. I know, it's so mean. Like that's your sister, fool. I don't know, but um, but really. Whose fault was that? Because this is bad. I feel like it was kind of Harry's fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real. Like, wasn't it kind of Harry's fault that everything well, happened? What was, oh, yeah. What, I, agree. I mean, that everything happened? Just everything. I mean, well, Voldemort's the one that put the image into his mind. And Harry's the one true. who believed it. He's mm-hmm. not going to. Harry believed it, yeah, but. He wouldn't have an image to believe if it weren't for Voldemort. And Voldemort can't blame Harry for it. He's got to, if he's going to get mad at someone, he's going to have to do it on someone on his side because he, he obviously can't get to Harry. So he's going to have to place right, but, the blame somewhere else. Right, but I mean, the blame of the, I, I guess I'm, who, who's, who's to blame for the entire incident? Well, Harry smashed the prophecy. I was going to say, yeah, once, not a, once the prophecy was Not smashed, on purpose, though. I feel it's Lucius's yeah. fault that it was smashed. And so the the ending could be his fault. But I say all together, it's Harry's fault. Remind me exactly what happened with the prophecy. Who had it when it broke? Neville, right? Or Neville was supposed to catch Mm -hmm. it. 
I think Lucius does get the blame um, because the end game was clearly to retrieve that property. And he was the leader and of it, so he has to take the fall. He was the leader of the yeah of the gang who who was out there, and and um, honestly, like Voldemort, that was a very tactically significant mission um, because Voldemort wanted that weapon. Mm-hmm. Or advantage of knowing ex- exactly what the prophecy said, um, and now Voldemort will never ever know exactly what the prophecy says, and there will always be this doubt in his mind about whether or not he can ever truly defeat Harry Potter, mm-hmm. and is, so Voldemort's guilt is has turned into is or Voldemort's um, upset over never being able to know for sure has turned into this rage. Against Lucius, Rah! you do the scream better than I do. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> I forgot about and that. If, yeah, the rage scream. And if Bellatrix is his favorite, shouldn't she have been the leader of it all? Ooh, touche, bird. <laughs> She's a Just wild saying. card, though. That's the thing. Is like she is a wild card. You cannot. Entrust her with it. I mean, I guess you can entrust her with the Horcrux, but Ugh. he tried Lucius first too. Yeah, she's too <laughs> impulsive to Horcrux. lead anything. Yeah, that's true. She would just. Then she would I would say she's first. not his favorite. No, and and <laughs> in reference to the Horcrux, all she had to do was like keep it in her vault for fifty years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not like she had you to know, do anything to is it. This um, this may be uh, I mean, Bellatrix. This always gets brought up by me in my mind when I'm rereading. Bellatrix is a married woman, isn't yeah, she? Yes, yeah. Rodolphus. Mm-hmm. Rodolphus. Yeah, Rodolphus Lestrange. And he's alive and stuff, right? Yeah, he's a Death Eater. Mm-hmm. Yep, thought so. Okay. <laughs> the way she's going on about Voldemort, I don't know. Hey, she can look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure things happen behind the scenes. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's not go there. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> Only because Voldemort is so not human at this point oh you oh i i thought never mind let's, <laughs> let's not talk about that let's instead talk about this theory that is brought up when, when yeah when snape is ta- you know answering all of bellatrix's questions she says well why haven't you killed harry potter he's been in front of your nose for all these years why haven't you killed him and he brings up the theory once again which um I think we learned about first, well, obviously first here, but was elaborated on on Pottermore, actually, during, I believe, Draco's summary. I don't have that here, but ch- log on. Log into Pottermore, kids, and check it out. It's very cool. Tell me where to find the thing to click on, and it better not be, like, galleons or something to add my card. I don't know where it is. <laughs> it's, think, just in, it's in Draco's chapter. I think you just click on Draco. I think it's, like, on him. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. But um, okay. and that theory is the one that Harry is a dark lord, and that's how he was able to defeat Lord Voldemort. So Snape goes on to say that he wanted to see, you know, he admits that he bought into this theory and wanted to see if Harry was indeed a dark lord before he just went and you know tried to kill him or whatever, whatever. So let's talk about Harry the Dark Lord for a moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know it's it's improbable and it's 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 very hard to think about, but let's just pretend in a parallel universe that Harry is indeed an insane Dark Lord. What kind of Dark Lord would he be? He would find a way to make Expelliarmus. I was about to say the <laughs> same thing. I'm like, Deadly. something to do with Expelliarmus. <laughs> 
What? Um. So would he like he, he would, like morph the spell or something? Yeah, yeah. He would basically uh, shoot wands out of other people's <laughs> hands that go and attack and hit other people. Yeah. With oh, so like impaling wands yeah, or something they until go. they die. Impale. Wow. Yeah. Impale yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um. You know, I like I like every single one of Snape's answers. He's so meticulous and calm and compartmentalized he's able to he knows why they're there you know he he knows exactly why she's come and he just talks and talks and talks until bella shuts up mm-hmm. and the he he does it by telling these captivating stories about his supposed you know actions that were all for voldemort when in reality, I mean, I think, yeah, it was probably a um, a rumor going around then, but it, it doesn't excuse why the second that he found out that Harry was, in fact, unremarkable and all of the wonderful adjectives that he says immediately after this part in this chapter, <laughs> um, why he doesn't then kill Harry, except to say that, it, you know, it's under Dumbledore's nose and the appointment at Hogwarts grew into a valuable... Um, circumstance that Voldemort is now currently in the books making great use of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh he knows his lines very well. He would be a very good actor. I mean, <laughs> he is a very good actor, isn't he? Well, it's kind of self-serving when when you, uh Snape um I guess initially when Bellatrix raises her first few concerns and shouts all of those accusations at him. He says, "Do you really think that I, Severus Snape, could fool the most accomplished <laughs> legilimens in the world?" Yeah. And like we know that's like exactly what he yeah. does. Yeah, he's having yeah. an inner chuckle. He's yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Do you really think I could fool the Dark Lord who's the best Legilimens ever? Um ha! so actually, la- ladies and gents, this confirms that Snape is a good Aquamans <laughs> and could is probably the best teacher Harry could have hoped for <laughs> in that subject. Uh, um, but we know their personal relationship. We talked about this during Order of the Phoenix. Like he's he wasn't a good teacher to Harry, but he should have been probably the best possible teacher that Harry could have ever hoped for as an occlumency mm-hmm. teacher. That's true. I mean, I would agree with that. I don't know. I just I, this is a great chapter because you know, like we said before, Snape is just telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, is this what this is like the only or version of the truth? Is that a thing? Like a version of. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I, I mean, I, except for the you know playing Dumbledore part, everything that he says is true. Mm-hmm. You know, and or plausible. I mean, we'll never know. What do you mean, or plausible? Well, it's it's just plausible. That's all it is. Is like everything Snape says seems reasonable. A lot of times when he gets into a tight space, he says, "Well, it all worked out in the end." You know, he says, "You were in Azkaban all that time. Wow, you're so devoted." Meanwhile, I got him 16 years of info on Dumbledore and the Order and everything else. Wasn't that cool? You know, he's just like, so he relies, I think, on the uh, the present fact that Voldemort is able to use him and does not currently blame him or question him the way that Bella does to, to in part, uh, have her lose a little of her, uh, um, what's the word, lose, lose a little of her intensity. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. So he he does. So while he does have the answers, he also does a couple of times call it back to current events and the fact that things are really working out quite well at the moment because they've got Dumbledore and Hogwarts by the ball. Now, does he ever Ooh. say anything that like Harry 
you know, is supposed to be the Dark Lords. Yeah, that, um, <clears throat> yeah, that comes up. Yeah, it's uh, the, the bottom of page 30 in the uh, U.S. edition. Okay. I should remind you that when Potter first arrived at Hogwarts, there are still many stories circulating about him. Rumors that he himself was a great dark wizard. So, but I mean, oh, and here's no, where he like, says too. like, um, Lord Voldemort that, you know, like in the fourth one, like yeah. Lord Voldemort can only, only kill Harry and stuff like that. Do you think Snape thought, you know, along those lines that Harry was always supposed to be Lord Voldemort's to kill? Like, do they mention that I, at all? I think what he says, yeah, he actually doesn't mention that. It's interesting because I think, isn't it in book four mm-hmm. when Voldemort com- commands the Death Eaters not to yeah. kill Harry because Harry's yeah. his? It's yeah. What Snape actually says in this chapter is just that um, the fact that Voldemort was able to use Harry's blood mm-hmm. as you know in his regeneration and that was a good thing mm-hmm. because that's why Sna- that's apparently why Snape kept him alive. All these yeah, years. yeah. Or just like, hey, it's advantageous. <laughs> yeah. um, but he actually says that he tells that to Bellatrix. He's like, because he was able to use Harry's blood because Harry was still alive. Now he's immortal. Mm-hmm. Like now he's completely invincible. And so, like, that's as far as he goes to say that, like, to justify, like, his saving mm-hmm. Harry for Voldemort. Gotcha. He doesn't actually say, well, you know, the Dark Lord would prefer to kill gotcha. Harry himself. Yeah. Right. That's what I always thought, kind of. Like, it was just that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's, I think, I think in this chapter it's played more mm-hmm. to Snape didn't kill Harry because he's, like, yeah. on assignment at Hogwarts, not raising any um, questions. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um. I guess, and and while we're on the topic of fun ways to die, um, I figured we should... I didn't know we were on that topic. (laughs) Uh, We're not, but, you know, let's go on to that topic and talk about the Unbreakable Vow, um, which is, you know, not a meat of the chapter, but definitely a very fun and interesting bit of this chapter. Um, It's a great conclusion. It's a great conclusion. And we actually have um, another lovely audio boo to listen to. So let's do that now. Hey, hello, Amora. This is Ellen Dawn. I want to make a comment on the unbreakable vow that occurs in this week's chapter, Spinner's End, which, may I add, is definitely in my top ten favorite chapters of the series. This spell has always intrigued me. An oath that, if broken, will kill the breaker of the oath. I feel like Noah would like it because it's almost as if this spell is alive. Like this spell is a judge or a jury that gets to follow the oath taker around watching their every move and can convict and execute the oath taker at any time with no notice. It's pretty mysterious. I also find it interesting that the three conditions of the oath made in the chapter are very non-quantitative, which would require even more judgment on the behalf of the spell. For example, the third line states, if it seems Draco will fail, Snape must kill Dumbledore. Very subjective. In my opinion, it seems as if Draco will fail during all of his attempts all year. In fact, I see no real way that Draco would ever succeed. So what kind of time limit is placed on this condition for Snape doing the deed himself? Why doesn't the vow just kill Snape after a few of Draco's pathetic attempts to certain, that certainly make it seem as though he will fail? I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Thanks. This was, this was yet another really, really good question. Um... Boom! Does anybody want to feel this regarding who judges the unbreakable vow and how <laughs> the language of how the how the language of this particular vow is vague enough that Snape should probably be fearful of dropping dead every time Draco <laughs> screws up? Yeah. Well, um, it is really vaguely like even the last one. She doesn't say um, to 
kill Dumbledore, she says the task Dumbledore or that the task Voldemort has given him. So it's really open ended, even on that part. Do you think it's because J.K.R. as a writer is having to hide the secret? Like, mm-hmm. do we, is mm-hmm. it we know now what Draco's tasked with? But I'm trying to remember back to when we were first reading this book, and it's like okay, what could Draco possibly be needing to do? Even though it's more or less stated in this chapter when I think it's Bella says, or Narcissa says, all else have failed um, in trying to do this. But That could be so know. many things, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. Things that, I think it things, means Dumbledore. I know, obviously, it means <laughs> oh. Dumbledore, but I mean, like, the first read-through, that could be a million things. Yeah. Or, because it could... Oh, I think she says him or something. I think she says, like... Let me wait, see. Um, As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I only meant that nobody has succeeded, has yet succeeded. Severus, please. You are, you always have been Draco's favorite. It doesn't go into him or anything. Okay. Him or anything. Okay, okay. So it is It is mm-hmm. vague. So that is kind of JKR. Um, like, Bellatrix thinks that she's being very specific, right? And it, it ends up being that there is some flexibility for Snape because, like, he can clearly mention it. It's not the same as the Fidelius charm or whatever where he still can't tell Voldemort where 12 Grimmauld places. The Unbreakable Vow has a very specific you know, set of arrangements or agreements that Snape has agreed to. He said, I will, and it's this binding contract. But he's able to work within the parameters, and I think after this conversation, he goes, you know, confers with Dumbledore, and they figure out a situation. Uh, They figure out how to work around, you know, these parameters that have been agreed to. Yeah, I I, I like the point that you brought up, Eric, because I hadn't thought about that, is that... um... This is Joe not being able to say what actually needs to be said mm-hmm. here. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't the vow be, if Draco fails to kill Dumbledore, will you do it? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. I think that's actually exactly what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. But because it's worded the other way. Well, but anyway, let's get to this, uh, again, this um, audio boom. It says, who judges what? Because the wording is, like, so vague. It's like, if it seems that Draco should fail. So at what point 
does it seem that Draco will fail? And how is that any different from the other times that this coming year, it seems that Draco has failed? Well, I mean, and also, I mean, even the second one says, will you Severus watch over my son Draco as he attempts to fulfill the Dark Lord's wishes? Like, how many wishes does the Dark Lord have? <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably quite a few. I mean, <laughs> like... Uh, Oh, this yeah. is bad. I'd love to be a genie and go over to Voldemort. <laughs> right. Like, what are your wishes? Uh, right. I feel like the attempt, maybe it has to be like that face-to-face like it is at the end. Like Draco being with Dumbledore right at the end. Like caused all the others. It's, oh, he did something to a necklace and that Katie Bell had it. And then she was supposed to go deliver it. Like there's all these little things in between. But at the end is that last one where he yeah. is face-to-face with Dumbledore. So it's like in that final confrontation, if it seems that he is likely to fail at actually committing. Yeah. Like if he gets as far as he possibly attempt. could get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the other thing, though, maybe the second, this is something I just considered right when you guys were talking, was um, maybe the second tenet of this agreement actually supports Snape staying alive for the whole year because it's will you watch over, watch over Draco as, as he attempts. Mm-hmm. And so... Snape is not going to be judged for the first time when Draco fails for not intervening because Snape has already said he will watch over Draco try. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, so it's kind of like that would make there's sense. a buffer zone mm-hmm. there. Like maybe it's the second the second agreement that nullifies the third or like the like basically gives Snape more time. Mm-hmm. Actually, well the um third it's one. my apologies. Yeah. yeah, the watch over my son as he attempts to fulfill is the first one. This the oh, okay. second is the best of your ability protect him, him from mm-hmm. harm, and the third is will you carry out the deed? If he, okay, if sorry. He fails, so the first yeah. one kind of I think extends the third one a little bit. I wonder if do you think one of the three is more powerful? Since since you're talking about like how the first one might kind of make up for the third one, do you think one of them is the like the you know if you definitely break this one you're dead? The third one. Or do you think they're all equal? I think the difference is not in like power, but in the fact that the third one and only the third one references a specific encounter mm-hmm. or, you know, like like that comes down to when all things are said and done and it looks like Draco's not going to succeed, will you step in? Whereas otherwise it's very vague, like undefined period of time. Mm-hmm. So until this moment of failure of Draco's where you have to step in or you'll die, mm-hmm. there's that sense of urgency surrounding the third one. But the first two are just kind of like, yeah, can you not suck at looking over him? <laughs> um, and that is more – it's not less powerful, but it's it's more um, – it's, it's less restrictive for, of Snape's actions, you know, because he's not going to be called to fulfill his, his duty – if he's busy one night and like the next night sees to Draco's like tutoring or whatever it is that he has to do. You know, I, I don't know. I think the third one, because it's more immediate about at the moment of truth, you know, will you help? Will you step mm-hmm. in? Um, that makes it, it's not more powerful, but that that's the only one that's really like super restrictive on a certain date and time specifically. Do you think Snape was expecting this or something like this? From Narcissa? Maybe. I th- uh, when he sees them, I think he knows what they're there for. Yeah. Like, Narcissa is clearly... And bless her, the mother instinct is taking mm-hmm. over. And she mm-hmm. is, you know, has been in the higher end of... On the higher class, you know, end of the uh, secret Death Eaters society for ages. And 
finally, with her husband being imprisoned and her son being asked to, or being basically ordered to take up his stead with, you know, equal responsibilities in spite of Draco's age, Narcissa realizes for the first time what is actually at stake, and what is at stake is her family, and she cannot um, deal with that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Snape knows that she wants some assurances, but it is Bella who suggests the unbreakable vow, and I think that was spur of the moment. I think it takes Snape by surprise, but almost in jest or in, in bait, like, and in spite, he does say yes, because Bella thinks that she's finally got one over on mm-hmm. Snape right. when she suggests the unbreakable vow. And then he's like, you know what? Uh, Let's do this. And then her jaw drops yeah. as it says in the <laughs> yeah. text. I think um, Narcissa is actually the one to suggest the vow. Because oh, okay. I think that the other one might be movie canon. Wait, no. Um, let me... I'm going to look this Actually, up. you're right, because she says, Narcissa is kneeling, kissing his hand, and says, will you take the unbreakable vow? Mm-hmm. Oh. And then Snape... Go. Bella's like, ha ha ha! Of course he'll try, and then Snape's like, yes, yes. I'll do yeah, it. Yeah, okay, okay. So it's actually so so Narcissa needs so much assurance that she wants him to take the unbreakable vow, but she's not skeptical. She thinks he will literally do Which it. Which you know, yeah. she thinks yeah. is funny. I said earlier that she has redeeming qualities, and I actually really think that she does, especially because we don't see too much of her before this point, and I feel like this year is kind of the turning point for her. Like you said, Kristen, she realizes what's at stake here and she kind of starts to drift away from the dark side of things. Mm -hmm. But basically, she is saying, Snape, and and I'm sure most mothers would say this, I value my son's life over yours even though you are the only person I will turn to with this problem. Like, I trust you so much that I'll talk to you about it, but it's okay if you die for it. (laughs) Is what she's saying to Snape right now in this moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that not true? No, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's a there's a general, I want to say, understanding being made here of the older generation to support the new generation. Like Snape basically is saying he will take a bullet for Draco mm-hmm. here, or he will. Um, well, no, actually, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that he'll kill Dumbledore. He'll kill. He's agreeing to kill somebody if Draco fails. I don't. <laughs> what's interesting to me in this chapter is that Voldemort expects Draco to fail and die. And I think that much is made clear by everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that Draco is being punished and for, for Lucius's uh, failures and that Snape has a line in this chapter that says, I believe the Dark Lord uh, does expect me to be the one to do it in the end. But So that begs the question then, is that... I mean, I understand that Draco's being punished, but is that the only reason? I mean, because wouldn't Voldemort want to pick somebody who would have an actual kind of, even remote chance of succeeding? Not if he's angry. I mean, if he's just going at it, he's just going to pick Draco because he's mad at Lucius, and then he knows Snape is right there. Because if he thinks Snape's loyal to him, he's like, oh, he, he works there. He can just go up and kill him anytime. But doesn't that seem foolhardy? I mean, obviously, Lord Voldemort is not, you know, the the sharpest crayon in the box. But I mean, isn't it a little foolhardy to put somebody like Draco on this task, knowing probably full well that eventually he'll be figured out? Well, do you believe that Draco gives it his all? Oh, no. (laughs) Well, um, okay, so we know the stress does get to him, but... I mean, Draco at least kind of tries, right? Yeah. Mm, I think in the beginning he's excited about it, but then 
because that's exactly what I'm bringing him because he was raised to be. Mm -hmm. And this is Voldemort lashing out because Voldemort, all of these Death Eaters have kids that they have raised in these dark ways to like just accept their parents' company and uh, like the company of all the other Death Eaters in their house and all sorts of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when Voldemort gives Draco this option, it is the best sort of revenge because he's saying to Lucius basically – um, this is your son who you've raised to think that I'm an okay guy. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to give him an order that he can't get out of, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let him die trying to please me, to serve me. I'm gonna let him die trying to serve me. And this is all because Lucius, you know, taught Draco to be okay with Voldemort, right? Mm-hmm. Over generalization. It's like no, no, no. You're oh. right. He's been waiting his whole life for this moment, and then he's halfway through, and he's like, oh crap, I don't want this. Get me yeah. out. Get me out. Yeah. Well, this is a great a great chapter. Um, God, this has been a long conversation, but a really great one. And mm-hmm. um, I really look forward to remembering some of the moments in this chapter and seeing where they kind of come full circle by the end of the book. Because I think there's quite a few things in this chapter that are going to come up again. Definitely. So. Yeah, I agree. Dev, I know we get back to Harry next chapter, but these two chapters were pretty... I think it was a great idea mm-hmm. to have them be without Harry and to have them start this book, this book, which is about Snape. Um, and now we're seeing where he lives <laughs> in this dirty, in this grimy summer. place. Uh. Yeah. Uh. A little bit of weird stuff about Wormtail. Though, too. Yeah. I mean, isn't everything about Wormtail a little weird? Yeah, yeah. I find it. Yeah. <laughs> I find it weird that everyone refers to him as Wormtail now, even though that was his Marauder's name. Like Snape refers to him as that and everything. I know. It's really bizarre. I think it's again, it's like, throwing it in your mm-hmm. face your your former self and former glory yeah, yeah. you are no more little vermin like you betray you, you betrayed all the friends who used to call you that now we're going to call you that to remind you of how um terrible a person you yeah are. it used to be an endearing name right kind of and now and now it's um oh my god i just had the word pejorative whoa i don't know what that <laughs> word means derogatory <laughs> now it's a derogatory name you know, it's not like nice and endearing anymore. It's derogatory. Right. Yep. Pejorative is a term of abuse, a term of disparagement, or derogatory term. Ah, oh, perfect. There so you, you said what I meant to say without saying it. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> but but welcome. there you go, listeners. That is uh, chapter two of Half-Blood Prince. So now we're going to go into this week's podcast question of the week. Um, in this chapter, we see a diminished Wormtail resent the role he has been assigned, and Snape threatens to ask Voldemort for a more dangerous assignment for him. How did Wormtail end up here? What was his job before this one, since the time of Voldemort's return to power? Um, we would love to hear your ideas about this question, and you can answer it on our main Alohomora site. That's a good one, because Wormtail... Who the hell knows where he's been? <laughs> <laughs> we we're looking for Pottermore references. <laughs> we're looking for right. wait, <laughs> ideas, guess guesses. <laughs> I mean, fan fiction would apply. <laughs> all, of the, all of your all of your uh, theories, all of your fanfic. theories or concrete answers are as always very welcome. We want to thank our guest Courtney for joining us. Thank you, Courtney. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I enjoyed it so much. Good. We're so glad to hear that. And if you would like to be on the show, just visit our page at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Um, all you need is an Apple headphone set will work or no fancy equipment needed. 
Um, and while you're on our website, don't forget to download a free ringtone. They are amazing. And if you want to get a hold of us, uh, there are many ways in which you could do that. We are lo- we are on Twitter. Our username is at AlohomoraMN. We're located on Facebook, facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. We're on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. And you can call us on our hotline, which is 206 Go Albus, which is 206 462 5287. And Audio Boom. You heard two very wonderful audio booms on this week's episode. One of them was Canadian, uh, which made it <laughs> even cooler. And. You know, we love it when we get these. This is an opportunity for you to record. It's super easy to send. Um, just go to alohomora.muggle.com, and there's something on the right-hand side for audio boom. It says leave us an audio boom. Um, click on that uh, button, and you will immediately start recording. Try to keep your recording and your question under 60 seconds, please, and we'll play it on the show like we do. And um, we want to mention our store. As always, we have some really awesome merchandise on there. Um, we have house shirts, you know, so all for all your um, Hogwarts spirit needs, I suppose. We have desk pick shirts, of course. The Mandrake Liberation Front, or MLF. Um, that is our, our token to Noah. Miss you, I Noah. I believe we sell that shirt. I know, but <laughs> you know what? At least it we, de- we left out the international. So okay. I'll let the listeners figure that out for themselves. And then, of course, we have um, all of our awesome host shirts like Minerva is my homegirl and Hug Me, I'm a Hufflepuff. And there's a million things on there, so definitely check it out. We have sales all the time, so if you're following us on Twitter or Facebook, look for the codes. They'll be there. Um, Yeah, there you go. And don't forget about our amazing smartphone app, which is available on this side of the pond and the other. Prices do vary. You can find transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. It's pretty cool. You should really go and get it. And that's it for this episode. I'm Kristen Keyes. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 120 of Alohomora. Sissy, open the Dumbledore! with that let's do this it's the chapter time wow that was almost perfect the train was i thought oh she's playing michael's clip (laughs) (laughs) i totally thought that it was that was perfect that was good bella and sissy take public transit (laughs) to arrive yes exactly wherever it is great sound Yes, we are. I was actually going to hold a moment of silence for the fox. Oh, please do. What what does the fox say? No. (laughs) Let's no. (laughs) 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 Don't start. Don't start. Kapow, kapow, kapow. (laughs) 
I've never heard that song, and I don't ever want to. What? Oh, you should just look it up for oh. this. My clients used to what love the fox this. Uh, say? Oh my god, you can say in, say it in Surrey. What does the fox say? Kapow, 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 kapow. <laughs> Wait. Oh no! Yeah, really? Yeah. And she'll um, say got different okay, different to... tones too. So I've gotten like Siri. What does the fox say? You will never know. The secret of the fox is an ancient mystery. Siri. What does the fox say? Oh, that's brilliant. Siri, what does the fox say? <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.